is Jess Van Ostrand reporting from my neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, where I recently interviewed German-born sound artist Daniel Neumann. Daniel and I had such an enjoyable conversation about what sound art is and how he uses the past to make it that he generously offered to create a new sound piece in response to our conversation. So we are delighted to share this with you. It plays alongside the interview if you listen carefully. Thanks so much and enjoy. Thank you for inviting me over to your studio in, love, in lovely Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, so Daniel, when I first met you, you were setting up and preparing for a performance. Um, and I thought maybe we could start by talking about that particular project that you were setting up, and then we'll talk from there about what it is you actually do and where you get your ideas from. But tell me first what you were doing when I met you, what you were setting up and what you had made. Mm -hmm. We met at this venue called The Red Door. And The Red Door is an kind of like alternative performance venue that has been around since I think 1978. Yeah, it's where like a lot of bands have rehearsed and performed, is that right? And it was founded by the first Rolling Stones manager. So he had all of like all these friends in the in the industry from back then, but he wanted to uh, he wanted to create a different venue for a broader music program and then it it went through different like crazy stages. I don't even know. Um, but now this venue is about to close down. He is over 80. I think he's 81. Mm. Um, the roof is leaking. Water is dripping into the building. The basement got flooded a couple times with sewage. So the building is not in great so condition. So it's, it's time to say goodbye <laughs> to the red door. Yeah. And um, I did a performance as part of the series hyphen hop and I considered it as uh, part of the saying goodbye to a venue with a lot of history and when you when you walk into this venue or I at least I felt all this past was somewhere present there's all these old speakers around that they they even built a bar out of PA speakers they built a bar out of PA speakers. Yeah. So there's like a lot of equipment everywhere. And there's, yeah, there's equipment. There, there was rehearsal space in the basement. Mm -hmm. I think Bad Brains, the punk band, Jeff Buckley rehearsed there. <coughs> all, of, all of them also left equipment that was then kept around. Mm -hmm. um, and usually for that type of venue, equipment gets used until it's entirely unusable so there was also like old equipment mm -hmm. that was still around because they thought oh, maybe we can use this one channel from this one board or something um, and so then as part of basically the closure of this chapter which is also I think a, a chapter in New York 
like music culture history mm -hmm. because these types of venues are gone. They're replaced by Dwayne Reed's and Starbucks. And oh and luxury condos. And those. So <laughs> which is so different from this type of space. I mean it's worlds away. So it seemed to me that you were commemorating this the history of the sexual space. And how do you do that if you're a sound artist? How do you commemorate something? And so, for me, I'm also a sound engineer, and so I'm very attracted to this old gear. Mm -hmm. um, and also in the basement, even though it had been flooded with sewage, there was still some equipment around that we then salvaged and so my idea was to do a performance only using equipment that I can find at the venue to basically walk into the space without bringing anything not even a single cable and then basically improvising and connecting this old gear from different times connect it all together and then to see what this system speaks mm. and that was the idea it sort of, and it sort of looked like you were having like a reunion concert of all of these different musicians that had maybe never actually played together but when I saw it the actual equipment itself was up on stage as if they were phantoms for the musicians I saw it that like way. standing in for the musicians so then, and what did it sound like? I mean, what happened to the sound once you started actually like running electricity through these but things? The, and there were also sound? like a bunch of devices, like there was a really nice synthesizer also in the basement. Um, and I plugged it in and the lights turned on and I was like, yes. And then it, and then it just went poof <laughs> and it all turned off. Really? Yeah. And you only got that one second out of it. That was unfortunately in preparation, so... That's all that happened with that, huh? Yeah. So that, yeah, that, that also, that also was part of, that was part of it, of digging, digging it out. Um, but then the sounds, I specifically went for more abstract sounds, so I was searching for little cracklings, mm -hmm. distortions, and connecting things in somewhat unusual manners so that the circuitry itself does something to each other. And I had one very strange moment where um, I put an equalizer. Equalizer is the tool where you, uh, where you modulate the frequency mm -hmm. of a sound so you can turn down the bass turn up the highs, but this equalizer had seven different bands and you could set the frequency and then be really specific with it. It was made to tune a PA system. So I plugged it in and I wanted to loop it through uh, one of my microphones that I had <coughs> set up. And then all of a sudden the equalizer itself started oscillating. Started making, making sound. sound. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. All by itself. All by itself. And did that continue and to happen? 
Yes. So you did you work it into the performance? In yes, the and that was then wow. it became it that became my main sound generator because it it's that to me was kind of like the somewhat magic moment where I thought, okay, this will actually work. Mm-hmm. Because beforehand I was nervous. Also, I, was, I felt a little sick that day. Um, so I, it was the setup was fairly rough. It's moldy in there, mm-hmm. so it, it's kind of hard to, to breathe. Anyways, and there was this strange feeling, and then when that when that happened to me, I felt like okay, something something's actually talking, something's wow. happening, and I don't really have full control over it, and. I'll just like go for it and trust that something interesting will come out. And then I could play this equalizer like a somewhat hard to control but uh, like a synthesizer. Wow! Because the different frequencies um, they resonated. Hmm. So there was some electronical problem with the equalizer set back its own output signal or like part of it mm-hmm. back into itself and then the circuitry <clears throat> the filters started resonating that's very interesting um for a couple of reasons one is that there's certainly a lot of improvisation that goes into your work and so it's interesting you use the word trust because it seems like something that a lot of artists in other art forms who deal with improvisation would definitely relate to that some that there's like an aspect of letting go right yeah i mean actors kind of talk about that a lot like that sometimes the character is kind of speaking to them and authors might talk about the same thing they just sort of follow where the story goes um so what's your relationship with improvisation and how do you approach that because it seems like there's moments of tension when you don't know what's going to happen so how do you how do you manage that do you have kind of an an intended outcome or how do you know when to step away and when to kind of direct what's going to happen? I don't... Is it totally to instinctual? Me, to me, I don't want to come up with rules like that because I feel like then you're not really improvising, then you are just playing set rules. Mm-hmm. And when people, when people talk about improvisation in jazz, then I'm like, <clears throat> well, but... They've played these patterns before, so they are more just like patchworking uh, a vocabulary together. To me, that's not really improvisation. To me, improvisation is when you when you're kind of like on the edge of the moment and you don't really know what will happen, but you you navigate it forward mm-hmm. and. You, you then yeah you see where you land, mm-hmm. and one to to me in in terms of improvisation one one big influence is Keith Rowe. He's a guitar player. He started in the '60s with jazz, then abandoned it, and started improvising with very like strange setups, like putting his guitar on the table and playing it in really, really unusual ways. But um, what, what I really admire about him is that whenever he feels comfortable with a setup that he came up with, 
he changes it. So that's, is that something that you've adopted as well? I mean, for that performance, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but just in, in terms of like how to, how to put yourself onto this edge of what is taking shape and not to not to have concept uh, like strict conceptual idea that you don't just execute to me Im improvisation is, is the opposite to that mm -hmm. to it's me it's, it's more it's a it's kind of like this question Lyotard the philosopher he when he is talking about the now he has this this question of um, is it happening and that the now is basically always on the edge to is it happening you don't know exactly what you don't know exactly how and then it's it's kind of like this, this constant question is it happening mm -hmm. and to me that's an important kind of like feeling for improvisation and I think for existing in the world. Sure. And it's and it's unique to everybody because in the, you know you have to you have to feel it in a way. <clears throat> and you can't necessarily apply it to another person. Mm -hmm. Because everybody has everybody has their different sense of where that place is, right? So tell us then about how you were first introduced to music. I mean was music kind of your first introduction to the work that you're doing now? It's it's a little difficult to know where to start. Does that is but that because music was always there for you? Somehow, my yeah. my my father plays in a, my father plays in the band, and I remember as a kid, um, I grew up in a youth hostel, and my father performed downstairs for the guests on like Saturday night sometimes, and our bedroom was kind of like. A above the room where they played and so I would put my ear on the heating tube to hear <laughs> to hear the music downstairs. What kind and of I music did really he play? Just these like oldies cover music and he still does it. And they they still perform at like these folk festivals around town. And you grew up in the youth hostel, meaning that a lot of different people are coming and going, I would imagine. I mean, you must have like seen and met all kinds of people from all over the world, too. I mean, did that have sort of an impact on... Probably. Uh, for, the, for the first ten years, it was people from one side of the world, uh, because the youth hostel was in East Germany. Um, and then when the waters opened, then it became more, more international. Were you exposed to Western culture at all growing up in East Germany? Were you hearing Western music, for example? Yes, because also the the town where I grew up in the countryside was at the border on a hill, and so we could a really beautiful view. You could look for like 150 kilometers with clear weather, and <clears throat> so we could look into the West and also get great TV reception and radio because the West would also broadcast into the East. And up on your hill you were able to... And so we had, just with a little screwdriver, we had perfect uh, reception for uh, 
Northwest and oh my goodness. TV and stuff. And so in the youth hostel, there was actually a lock on the TV so that the guests couldn't dial into the uh, West German TV program. So you had to really... It was really, illegal. Yeah, so you had to find a way around that. No, I mean, I mean what people did. Yeah, yeah everybody, everybody did that, really? Yeah, everybody was watching it. That's fascinating. So, does that, did that at all impact you, like, knowing that there were rules and things you weren't supposed to be listening to or watching? Did that play into your development as an artist in any way? That's an interesting question. It's, I think it's... I'm sure it did in fairly complex ways. Um, I think one way is that you kind of like question the system that you're in and you're not uh, you're not really believing or you understand it as a, as a man-made system that you're part of and then especially with the with the big change when and it, it the 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 change happened pretty fast within like within one year there was a different different money different different products completely different lifestyle and everything everything was changed everything everybody had to kind of like reor reorient themselves because all of a sudden they were living in a, in a completely different system to what they grew up in and I think that definitely has an influence in at least seeing society as a man-made thing that is changeable and there are malleable structures or something. Mm. Um, as a teenager, a friend of a friend of mine, we also we played in bands like high school bands and stuff. Um, but with with one of them. We started, um, without knowing the term improvisation, we started improvising with old tape machines and just like found objects, and chairs, and manipulating the recording onto the tape by playing it back with, through a broken tape piece. And that was when we were like 16, 17, um, growing up in the countryside. No, the internet wasn't around then yet. Uh, we didn't really have any references other than uh, Jimi Hendrix's guitar solos mm, or something. Interesting. Um, because then I got introduced to, to more like bands that incorporate improvisation later and by getting introduced to like Sonic Youth or bands like that then it made me feel like, it made me realize that our little weird experiments were actually like legitimate artistic things to do. Um, and we, we, we just called it uh, Kunst aus Langeweile, which translates to uh, art made out of boredom or something art that comes out of boredom. Oh, fantastic. That's how, we, that's how we saw it, because we grew up in the countryside. Uh, we didn't like the whole like alcohol, Togafest culture. 
I stopped drinking alcohol when I was 16 as part, as kind of like a that was your rebellion. Your rebellious <laughs> act, yeah. No, I turned, yeah. That's fantastic. I stopped I drinking. That. I became vegetarian. That was my. That was my. You'll teenage. show the authorities. That was, <laughs> I'm gonna go make experimental my, sound art. Yeah, that was my teenage rebellion. <laughs> wow. So you really have been thinking about this for a long time, then. Um, so now, I mean, so now you're in the U.S. and I wonder um, how. How do you talk about the work that you do? In some ways, it's quite ephemeral. You're doing performances that maybe would never be the same twice. For example, there's a lot of improvisation. I know that you're interested in collaboration, so there also might be different people, different times that you are putting something together. Um, is there a way that you would describe um, your artistic voice? Like, how, Would someone know that it's your work in a certain because of certain elements? I'm the wrong person to ask that question. I, I know, I almost want to change the question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you should ask somebody. Ask somebody else what who, your work sounds like. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, yeah, but what if I said, what, is your, what does your work sound like? I mean, could you answer that question? Um, I, th I mean, th I think there are, certain, there are certain things that I'm pushing towards, especially in life, in life performance, and also, um, my work, like I'm not only doing live performance. I also do installations or work with objects that make sound. So I kind of like categorize my work loosely in um, in like live performance, in um, object articulation, meaning these unique sound objects that get articulated through sound but then my goal in that is to make the sound be somehow um, uh, inherent in the object or like coming from the object mm. instead of the object is a playback machine and the playback machine plays back this genius composition by this composer no the, I try to create sound that is, is kind of like makes the object speak and makes me as the maker less of a factor. Mm -hmm. So th that's just what I'm going for in that object articulation. And that's also what we did for this show uh, that's up in the, in the Bronx courthouse at the moment. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's under the category uh, Object articulation. And object then articulation. Okay, <coughs> and that's on view in the Bronx through when? July. July seventeenth. Oh, July. July nineteenth. Yeah. For those in New York, they can go to the Bronx and see the non-performance side, the object articulation, as you call it. Right. Where it's in a way the objects perform themselves. Yes, and that I mean that reminds me a little bit of the performance at the Red Door where I met you setting up because the objects were so prominent. It right. really was about you finding and reclaiming these found objects and generating sound from them, but they were so important, it would have not been the same if you purchased some new equipment and said, this is in honor of the Red Door. No, I mean, right? And so there, was the same, there was the same factor that, and, uh, and that's why also then improvisation is important, that it's not about 
me imposing my genius idea onto these things. It's more about me navigating a dialogue between the objects of setting up a system that then speaks as a system, but the system doesn't talk about my ideas. It just expresses something on its own. And I'm more like a facilitator, facilitator to navigate what this what this what this energy that's created <clears throat> what form it takes. So I, na I navigate and I influence, but I'm not expressing myself, or I'm not mm -hmm. expressing an idea, or imposing an idea. And that I think that that sort of way, vein is maybe what I'm going for in, in a lot of things. Mm. Oh, so we did find something. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. did find one way of describing <laughs> your work. Good job, yes. It's, it's almost like you're saying, what do these objects have to tell us? Right? You're, you're the facilitator, but the objects are the ones that you are kind of pulling a story out of, almost like they're characters, maybe, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so I wonder, so as you know, we're talking about the idea of um, legacy and history and monuments. And when I first met you, I really was thinking about monument. It really um, came to mind when you were setting up all of that equipment that you had dusted off or maybe not dusted off <laughs> from the red door. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's kind of, he's paying tribute to the historical legacy of this place through the objects that have been left behind. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really beautiful statement. I wondered if there are other projects like that where you've worked with found objects um, that have like a historical quality where the story that they're telling is kind of about the past or history in some way. Mm -hmm. For this, <clears throat> for this object articulation, for these kind mm -hmm. of objects, they are also found found objects that then get reworked into like more sculptural statements, uh, where the where the history of each object is kind of like changed but still present. Mm. Can you give us an example? Um, this is for your show that's in the Bronx. Right, and it was summer. also okay. this similar objects we also had in a show at Friedman Gallery this uh, that was up this January. Mm -hmm. um, but one example from the show in the Bronx is I have an old cinema speaker from 1945 and we didn't use it for the Friedman show because we couldn't quite place it. It didn't really fit in. We couldn't figure out what to do with it. And it was, to us, it felt somewhat boring, whatever we came up with. And so we, we left it out of that show, but it, it was still kind of like around in our studio. Um, and in, this, in the Bronx, our space has a little nook that goes kind of like outside from the basement and then there's an old staircase leading up to nowhere leading up to just where it's covered so it was maybe like an emergency exit or oh, something a staircase to nowhere that sounds <coughs> very good yeah <laughs> and then we found two metal tubes these these things where you can hold up a ceiling and we used the two of those 
to push this cinema speaker under the ceiling up in this nook to then kind of like press it into this weird old forgotten space. Okay. Um, yeah, and for that speaker then too, it, it, it became an, an expression from what may have happened in the past, in this nook, was it a was it an actual like trans transitory space or not? And for for us, the the interesting thing that was that the building was around and active at the time when the speaker was made. The building where this exhibition was. Yeah, in the Bronx. So you're kind of uniting <coughs> an object and a building from the same time period and yeah. bringing them together and making that's one nice. express yeah. the other in a way. Oh, that's so nice. I almost envision a, like a monument type of structure when, when yeah. you describe it like that. Yeah, and that, huh. that, that to me has something monumental hmm. by, by what's in there. <coughs> and another, another thing about monument, for me, um, what, I, what I find very inspiring about the term, and I think maybe the Lewis read monument in this way, but I, can't, I don't really remember clearly, um, that monument is an object that stands by itself, where it doesn't matter what humans have done to it or think about it. It's an object that can that just stands for itself and it expresses itself. And then we can look at it and deal with it, but it won't ch change it radically. So it maintains its it maintains its position, no matter what's happening around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. And it, and so, and I I think he had, he used the word monument at, to to read certain artworks that could just that would just be placed and stand, and then we can interpret it and read it and do all sorts of things, but it. The, the object maintains a certain integrity within itself. I want to thank Daniel for his time and generosity with this interview. I also want to thank our hardworking editor, Corey. We will be back again next month with another conversation about creativity. Thanks. <laughs>